Today we're going to find ourselves in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. We're going to be looking at the uh, last two verses of chapter 9, verse 27 and verse 28. Uh, if you turn your Bibles there to, with me, that would be great. Uh, and then if you'll stand for the reading of God, I would greatly appreciate that. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 and 28. Uh, reading from the, the English Standard Version translation, uh, it says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in humility, uh, acknowledging our human frailty and weakness, our dependence upon you, the need for your spirit, for him to move in among us and through us, to work in our hearts, uh, that inward part of us, Lord, that so oftentimes we ourselves can't control. We ask that you would work that we would hear from you, that your word would uh, be sown in us, uh, that it would find good soil, that the roots would grow deep, uh, that it would grow up and produce great fruit uh, that would remain for your glory. We pray that you would be with us now. We thank you for being able to hear the good news already through singing. And now, Lord, we ask through the speaking and teaching of the word that uh, we might hear it as well there. In Jesus' holy name, for your glory alone, we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Whereas on the 22nd day of September in the year of our Lord, 1862, a proclamation was issued by the President of the United States containing, among other things, the following to wit that on the first day of January in the year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforth, and forever free. And the executive government of the United States, including military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons and will do no act or acts to repress such persons or any of them in any efforts they make for their actual freedom. Many of you recognize these as the opening words to an extremely important historical document, uh, which is the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, issued by Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War uh, that set the slaves free in the southern states and after the Civil War paved the way for the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery in the United States. When writing and quoting, President Lincoln said that this was, in his own view, one of the most important aspects of his legacy. And they quoted this from him when he said these words. Uh, I never in my life felt more certain that I was doing right than I do in signing this paper. If my name goes into history, it will be for this act, and my whole soul is in it. Uh, one act by one man with the right authority released from bondage an entire group of people uh, that had ramifications on an individual level uh, for the group as a whole and then for the nation as it set the nation on a new course. Uh, we see and we're sitting in the results of one of those things. Living Water is the result of what happened there with the Emancipation Proclamation. 
See, one man with the right authority can have an impact on many people's lives. Uh, when I come to this uh, issue and look back at history and think about the Emancipation Proclamation and what happens there, uh, it has deep significance for me personally. Uh, it has deep significance for me because when I was a, a small boy between five to seven years old, I still can think back to the memories of my great-grandmother. Uh, what I remember most about her were butterfingers that she would have next to her bed when I would come and visit her, <laughs> these little butterfingers, yeah. Uh, I loved to come and eat those, and that was why I would always was happy to see her. Uh, <laughs> I'm just trying to be honest here. Um, <laughs> but what was interesting, though, is that my grandmother, uh, great-grandmother, when she went, I guess I was about five or six when she passed. She was 99 years old. She had been born in the 1800s. Her parents and her grandparents were slaves. So in my own life, I met someone who was a family member that had their own memories of people who had been in slavery. And so for me, it, it's that close when I think about the issue. And so the idea of what happened with the Emancipation Proclamation has great significance for me. For some of the others of you in the room, it's just as deeply impactful and meaningful for you, perhaps like me because of your own ancestry. For some of you, it's because of the relational attachments that have been formed in your life over time. And because of who you're attached to in life, this has significance for you. For others, it's because you're in the fight for freedom. Uh, you, you, you see other people in various forms of slavery or bondage in society, and you're working, advocating to see them set free, and so that's meaningful for you. For others, it's simply because of your own personal convictions about the matter, and for others, it's because of your journey with God, and there has been spiritual transformation, and then this has, your life has been changed. And so slaves being freed is of great importance to you. Brothers of you in the room, uh, you recognize it. Intellectually, you understand it. Uh, you can resonate with it from an intellectual standpoint. But just at a heart level, if I could use that terminology, it may not be as meaningful to you. Not because that's a bad thing. It's just in the sense of you just had a different life experience. And so for you, it doesn't necessarily connect with you on the same level uh, as it does for me or others in this room. And that's okay. But, but for you, you do understand and, and resonate with the idea of deliverance. That is, you being in a situation or being assaulted by those who you might qualify as enemies and wanting to be removed from that. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, perhaps you've been in a work environment where it has been hostile. Uh, either those who are over you or those who are peers of you or those who are subordinate to you have caused your environment to be extremely difficult. And getting up and going to, morning, tomorrow, going to work tomorrow it, it is, is for you not a pleasant thought. Monday is torture day, and Friday is freedom day. Uh, and so for you, deliverance is important, and you're hoping for the day when you can, for whatever reason, transition out of the occupation you're in to another environment. You want deliverance. For others of you, you, you know what deliverance is like, and you desire it because of, you've been in a turbulent relationship. Maybe the relationship is still turbulent right now. Uh, you, you're going home. Uh, maybe it's in a friendship relationship. Whatever it is, and that relationship is causing you stress, and, and you're hoping for the day when whatever it is, the other person in the relationship will change the way they think, will change the way they behave, will view life differently, and will cause to bring peace in the relationships. For some of you, whether we know it or not, maybe it's a private matter for you, uh, it's financial stress. 
there's a burden, there's a bill. Perhaps, like for me, it's, it's the years of bad choices and school debt still hanging over your head. And even though you've got your degrees and you've moved on, uh, the cost of that is still following you. You've been out of college for years. You finished your degrees, but the payment for it is still saying you still owe us. And you're waiting for the day when the bill comes in and it says balance zero. You want deliverance. For some of you, it's, it's a lingering medical condition that you've had to, to battle with in life. And you're just hoping for the day when you can wake up and, and experience health again. And so for some of us, it's when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you just simply say, Lord, I would like to stop aging. A few less gray hairs would be nice. You know, you just want deliverance from just the process of aging. What cream can I buy to, to, to slow the hands of time? You know, where, where, where can I get it at? Who's selling it? What juice? What vitamins can I get to make me feel young again? You, you just want to be delivered from aging. See, in one way or another, we all identify with the idea of being set free from some form of bondage. Whether that's because of ancestry or whether that's because of the conditions you face in your own life, there is this desire in all of us to be freed from something. And it reminds us that there is a fundamental issue going on in the human race that all humans are being plagued by, and these are just symptoms, uh, manifestations of the true bondage that is holding humans down. We are in bondage to sin. But as was shared last week, the good news is that God has already done something in human history to free human beings from this bondage, which we call redemption. And not only that, but there is a day coming when God is going to make all things right and new. He's going to put the world as it should be. And so that's the two things we simply want to look at today. We want to look at redemption and restoration. Last week, uh, we started a new series called The Basics of the Gospel. It's a three-week series. This is number two of the three weeks. Uh, and in this short series, we're just looking at it from a big themes perspective, approaching it from the themes. We've uh, chosen uh, a theme that's kind of popular right now, that's become popular, I guess, in the last five to seven years, uh, which is called Creation, Fall, redemption and restoration, and that's the angle. There are other forms that people have come up with. I'll share one of those with you later that have, have come up with. It, it, this, is, this is nothing necessarily that I would say is inspired by God in the sense of it's on the level with Scripture. It's, it's just a way of looking at things, and there are other ways of doing it as well. So other people propose that. But one of the things that happens uh, in that is as we're laying out these themes, we, uh, we do want to emphasize that this is, we're saying it's basics, right? So it's just, just scratching the surface. We're getting, uh, like I went to flew to Puerto Rico and I was up and we were looking down at Puerto Rico coming up and it was just a big view, an overview. You could see the whole island. That's kind of what we're doing here. We're giving an overview. We're not getting down into the weeds. Uh, to give you an idea or a taste of the fact that there's more, there's more richness and fullness to the gospel than just what we're explaining today and throughout this series. Uh, uh, there's a book I, I read a, a number of years ago. I've read it several times uh, by one of my professors at um, Dallas Seminary, Dr. Daryl Bach, uh, and he talks about recovering the lost gospel as good news. And in the opening of that book and introduction, he begins to summarize and lay out talking about the fullness and richness of the gospel. And, and, and I think it gives us a taste of understanding what's going on, that there's a, there's a lot that God has done. Uh, and so let me give you a taste of that just to kind of give you an idea. He says this. He says, the gospel starts with a promise, a relationship in the spirit. It is pictured as a meal and a washing, the Lord's table and baptism. It is rooted in a unique action supplying a unique need, the cross. It is inaugurated as a gift that is a sign of the arrival of the new era, 
Pentecost. It is affirmed in divine action and scripture, God working uniquely and inseparably through Jesus. It is embraced in a turn that ends in faith, invoking the name of Jesus, and it involves a different kind of power and is designed to be a way of life, reconciliation, and the power of God unto salvation. What we're giving you in this series is a glimpse. That's what we're giving you. Sean did a good week last, last week of laying out for us those first two themes, creation and fall. And today we're going to look at the themes again of redemption and restoration. We're going to find both of those things in verse 28 of chapter 9 of Hebrews, both redemption and restoration. Now, for those who are not familiar with the book of Hebrews, there's a theme besides some other themes that are going on, like the warning passages. But in Hebrews, there's a major theme that's going on that the author, which we don't know who he is. When I was in Puerto Rico last week, the pastor was up preaching. He happened to mention uh, in his sermon that he was doing, he was like, hey, I think Apollos wrote the book of Hebrews. And I was like, okay, brother, hey, I got you. Hey, you know, there's a whole bunch of theories about who wrote Hebrews. You can name all kinds of people. But uh, whoever it is that wrote Hebrews, it's trying to get across a point. And it's uh, those who are desiring to potentially go back because of the hardship of following Christ, they're being tempted to go back to the old covenant, the old way, thinking that it might be better than the new way. And so he's making an argument throughout the book as he's looking at the old way things were done and the new way in Christ. And he's showing throughout the book repeatedly how Christ is superior or better in every way than what they had before and that they ought not to leave Christ and go back to the old way. And so that's what he's laying out. And in this section, he's getting to comparing the priestly office and sacrifice that Christ holds and made uh, in comparison to the, the old office of the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. And so he's talking about that because what he gets to in verse 11 and 12 is that what Christ wrought by his priestly service and the offering of his sacrifice is nothing less than eternal redemption. Now, for some of you, you remember the biblical concept of redemption. It has to do with, as one Bible dictionary defines it, it's the release of people, animals, or property from bondage or slavery, right? And it's often by means of a payment. Now, God is, is pictured as the one who redeems, and it's not always payment because God can redeem without making any payments. And sometimes God does redeem, and he doesn't make any payments. He just redeems. He sets free. And so that's kind of the idea. In the Old Testament, when you're looking at it, the major theme in the Old Testament when it comes to redemption is mostly in physical terms, being saved from enemies, saved from a situation, things being bought back. Uh, but there's this hope uh, because of the situation that Israel's in towards spiritual redemption. And that kind of comes out. When you get to the New Testament, it, it, it kind of flip-flops the other way around. Uh, the main focus is on this spiritual redemption that has been wrought by God through Christ and then the ultimate hope is this phys ultimate physical deliverance uh, of creation. And that's why we're dealing with these two themes. But in both Testaments, there's one big thing, that the main redeemer for humanity and for all that exists in creation is God himself, that God is the great redeemer. And that brings us to a natural question that may arise. Why is redemption so important for humanity? Uh, in one sense, we can look at the results of being in bondage, and that can help us to understand, uh, including in our own lives, why it's so important to have redemption or deliverance, often, that is, by means of a price that is paid. Uh, we see in the world at large, if we look out around us, 
There are numerous dysfunctional relationships. There are oppressive governments and corrupt political systems. We can look at the lack of justice for those who have experienced injustice in society. We can look around and find that there, that there is a plethora of lack of concern for those who are truly in need. We can look at the moral degradation of, of godly values that ultimately form the basis of a good society and how those are being eroded by the choices and the desires and things that people want. And, and this, this would just be uh, the, the, to get the list started if we were to go around. There's lack of concerns for life, uh, and, and the list goes on. And in some way, we know that as we have tried different solutions over the years, that someone in the process, even with the solutions that we try, we think we have a good deal, and humans get going in a direction, somewhere along it gets sabotaged in the process, and we never get out the result that we want to get out. And the reason why, because someone fails in the process with the solution. And the reason why is because something has humans in bondage. And so we find we, that we live in destructive ways uh, in our own relationship to ourselves, as well as to others, and even to the environment that we should be stewarding and caring for, we live in destructive ways and make destructive choices, putting ourselves first. Last week, if you heard the message Sean shared with us and took us back to the origin of, of how we got into this mess, and he shared with us that humans became enslaved to this, this concept that the Bible calls sin, this, this idea is just one of the many words that the Bible uses to talk about, if I could use it, it's the idea of missing the mark, uh, like uh, the, the Benjamites that are used in the Old Testament, they were, they were left-handed and they would sling stones and it would say they wouldn't miss the mark. They were accurate in their shooting. But, but when, when it comes to sin, we're missing the mark, that we, we never hit the target. And oftentimes the reason we're missing the mark is because we're not aiming at the standard that God has for us. We're, busy, we're missing the mark because instead of aiming over there, I'm intentionally aiming over here. And so that's kind of the idea. So this idea of sin, of missing the mark, not living up, to the standard that is set out for us by God. And they got into that mess because they disobeyed God, because they followed uh, the guidance and the counsel of the evil one, who appears, of course, in the text as the serpent. Uh, what's interesting, of course, that he raised last week is uh, Eve was deceived in the process. She fully believed what the serpent said. The problem was Adam. He was the issue. Why was he the issue? Because Adam was not deceived. Adam blatantly and willfully sinned, knowing with full well, eyes open, that what he was doing was wrong. And yet he chose to sin against God with full knowledge, no deception. He went in wholeheartedly, lock, stock, and barrel. And so their eyes were opened after he sinned, and thus the disaster spread uh, to the world. And we see, as, as Sean said last week, God's creation was good as he laid verse after verse about God said it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then we watch as God's creatures, both heavenly and earthly, corrupt God's good creation. And we see how uh, sin then alienates humans from God. He puts them out of the garden. They're put out. They no longer have access. And then we start reading the following chapters. We pick up a chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and we realize that people continue to repeat these same patterns that we see in the garden, but much more uh, dreadful. And uh, we find out that when people are living outside of a relationship with God, they make harmful choices for themselves and for, for others. And then in the Bible story, it's just in that moment around we get to chapter 12, when things start to look dark and you're like, man, humans, they're, they're, boy, boy, they, we are not getting out. This, we are headed back for a disaster here. There's some hope shows up. 
God uh, calls a man and decides to form a nation out of him to represent him to the rest of the world. Uh, he redeems this group of people from slavery in Egypt. Uh, look at that. It's looked at Exodus 6.6 6, that talks about that. And then he enters into a special relationship with them because he wants them to be his representatives on the world. He wants them to be an example to all the other peoples of the earth of what it's like to be in a right relationship with God. And so he gives them laws that governs their entire lives because he wants people to know how they ought to live in light of a holy God who's created them and made them, and he wants them to be a representatives. And so in one sense, he calls them a kingdom of priests to the nations. They were supposed to be the priests for all other nations. They were supposed to represent and show what living in relationship with God is like and then help teach other people what God was supposed to be like. And, and, and the Bible then shifts its focus where they become the main focus. And you start to ask, well, why is it only talking about them? When you start to think about it, out of all the nations on the earth, if you're going to run a test scenario of anyone who can get things right, they've got the best chance out of any other nation. And why do they have the best chance? Because they're in a relationship with God unlike any other nation. God is not managing them through uh, uh, subordinates. He's dealing with them directly. They've got the best chance to get it right. And so the Bible focuses the rest of the Old Testament on his relationship with Israel, although it mentions other nations throughout and talks about the other nations and God's heart and desire to reach beyond just Israel uh, in his plan. And so God is working with them directly. But as we come to find out, as we continue to flip the pages of the Bible, that even though God has chosen them, he's elected them, he's entered into a relationship with them, he's delivered them from slavery, he's given them miracles, he's walked them alongside, he's provided for them, that they, like everyone else on the planet, still are in bondage. They are in bondage to sin. And so in this relationship that they have with God, there's this off and on again relationship. God continue to be faithful. They're on sometimes with God, and they're off sometimes with God. They're on sometimes with God, and they're off sometimes with God. And so this kind of cycle goes on, and so sin gets the best of them at different points. And so we see this kind of come out uh, in some of the writings. One of the prophets uh, by the name of Isaiah, he wrote this in talking to his people about this. He said this, he said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So the people are wondering, hey, what's wrong with our relationship with God? Why are things not working out? You know, is it God, does it, does it, that God does not have the power to help us, to deliver us when we need him? Is he just deaf? Did we get some interruption in the heavenly connection line? Did we lose the connection? And, and what Isaiah says to the people, that's not the problem. The problem's not on God's side. God is not lacking any power to save you, and God is able to hear everything you're saying. He can hear your prayers. It's not that there's a bad connection going on. The problem is your sin. You continue to be unfaithful to God, and that continues to distort and mess up the relationship. And we all know that. We know what it's like when sin gets in a relationship, how it messes it up. I can recall just one example, and you could probably think of others. Uh, I've had examples where uh, there's been a relative of mine who's engaged in a relationship with another relative because they needed to borrow money, and, uh, and they loaned them that money, and there was a promise made that certain payments would be made back. But when it came time to pay that money back from that other relative, they didn't bring the money back. And then they made themselves hard to find 
And you know how that usually goes in relationships when you loan relatives money and they don't want to give you your money back. There becomes issues and the relationship begins to break down. Every time you see them, all you can think about is, where's my money? You at the family reunion, they, they standing over six tables over. You're like, I need to have a conversation with them. We need to talk about that money that they owe me, right? Because sin, when it enters a relationship, it will break a relationship down, even a relationship with God. And we see that. That's the way things played out. There came a point when God was just fed up. He was done. He was tired. He had extended enough grace, and he was like, listen, you guys keep breaking the covenant. It's time to, to get serious here so you'll learn your lesson. And so he sent the people into exile. And that's what we have, the, the story of the captivity of the Babylonian exile. But God, because he's so gracious and because he's so faithful, he eventually brought the people back in the land, although they themselves never saw themselves, even though they were back in the land, still saw themselves in exile. And so we kind of understand why the psalmist was crying out when he cried out in Psalm 130 when he said these words, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. See, there's the hope for spiritual redemption. Uh, the, 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 those who were spiritually attuned, they knew what the problem was with Israel, although there's all these other things, you know, government, political leaders, people abusing power, all these symptoms and manifestations of it. But he said the root problem is the sin issue. And at some point we are hoping, because we can't seem to get it resolved ourselves, that God will intervene and that God will take care of our sin issue so that we can live as the people of God as we should live. And what we see graciously by God is that throughout the Old Testament, he promises to do just that. He says to the people that he will one day come and he will solve the sin issue. We see that in, in Daniel as God reveals that to Daniel the prophet while he was in Babylonian, Babylonian captivity. Now, why is this of special interest to us? Because I'm talking about a people group that you may have no ancestry with, no connection to. That's another part of the world that you have no cultural identification with. Why is what was happening with God and them important for you? Because whatever God's solution for their problem is, that issue of sin, whatever that solution is that God has, what works for them will work for you. And that's the argument that, that Paul is making in Romans chapter 1 through 3, that all of us have the same issue. That was true of the Gentiles, that we're in Adam, was also true of Israel, they were in Adam. And that was their problem. And so God brings a new solution. Hebrews chapter 9 lays into this, and I'll read several verses from it. Uh, chapter 9, go back with me. Let me drop down to verse 11 and pick it up as he's comparing uh, Christ to uh, his work uh, as a priest. Verse 11, uh, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through, uh, through the, the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of, of goats and of calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Drop down to verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Drowned, let me drop down to verse 24. It's not on the slides, but I want to include this to give context. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the, thing, or copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood, not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it was appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. So he says, look, when you're comparing, looking at this Old Testament, God has in Christ done something great. In the priestly uh, aspect, God uh, has in Christ, Christ serves as our high priest. Unlike the old covenant, he has entered into heaven, the true temple of God, in the very presence of God, and he has offered the sacrifice, not of, of bloods of bull and goats as they were doing in the Old Testament, but by the blood of his own uh, sacrifice of his own life. So he's both priest and sacrifice. And because his sacrifice is perfect, it only had to be offered one time for all time. So he doesn't, like the priest of old, have to repeatedly, year after year, go in and keep re-offering for the sins of the people. This one sacrifice is so perfect that it covers the sins of the people of God forever. That's how great the sacrifice that Christ made. Christ made. So God redeems us. He sets us free from the bondage of sin through the payment of Jesus' own life. Remember, it was God's idea, it was God's plan that set the Son into the world. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It was Christ by his own desire to offer up his life on our behalf to pay for our sins. And thus John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Why does he call him Lamb? Lamb because he's going to give his life in the place of our lives to pay for our sins with his own blood. And his perfect blood covers our sins, just like in the Old Testament, those sins were offered and covered by the bloods of those things. Uh, Jesus did it in a more perfect way so that the sacrifice was fully taken care of. And when he had done that, then he conquered death and was raised from the dead so that he could now offer his life and forgiveness to all of us who put our trust in him. Now, this becomes good news for you when you realize the bondage that you're in. You can't get yourself out of it. And then you look at verse 27 of the text. Look at back at verse 27. Notice what it says there. It says in the text that there is an appointed time for everyone to die. That is that when you were born, when you were set up in your mother's womb, the days that I, the concept is that the days were already determined of how long you were going to live. Your countdown has already started. And it's been ticking. Is that 20,000 days? Is it 25,000 days? 30,000 days? I have no clue. But I do know this, that one day it's going to hit zero. And what he says by divine appointment is that, that when you, the, the course of man's life is that when your clock hits zero, then it's time to give an answer. That every human will be held accountable to God for the lives they live. And in the same way, it was appointed for us to die. It was appointed by divine appointment for Christ to die also. But his wasn't to face judgment in the sense of for his own sins, but for our sins so that he might bear them uh, so that we might be released. And when we know that one day we're going to have to be held accountable for uh, the lives we lived and we realize the bondage that we're in, the sins we've committed, to know that we have a redeemer, a deliverer, someone who's already paid the price, that's good news. To be released from our sin debt so that we don't have to stand before God like Adam and Eve. Remember what Sean talked about last week. Remember how it turned out for them. 
They sinned. They disobeyed God. God showed up to hold them accountable to the command he had given them. And when they did show up, how did it turn out for them? Well, what did God sentence them? He sentenced them to death, and then he removed them from the life of God. End of chapter 3, it talks about the tree of life being in the garden. And what God says in heavenly counsel is, he says it's best for us to put them out of the garden so they won't have access to the tree of life. In Christ, because of what Christ has done, because of his power and his resurrection life, because he has paid for our sins, what he literally does for us is open the door of the garden back up and give us access back to the tree of life. That's what's happening, what God is doing in Christ for us. See, the, the problem that humans are facing, and though we see different manifestations of it, like when I talked about slavery in America earlier, that, that's a manifestation of the bigger problem that's going on with all humans, because slavery in America isn't unique. Uh, it's the long history of the world, uh, slavery and exploitation of others and, and the misuse of others. That's because we have a real problem that's holding us down, which is sin. And the only thing, the only solution that's going to work is the solution that God has given, and that is that Jesus Christ pay for your sins and transform you into a new human being. See, in Jesus, he offers the forgiveness that we need. See, there's only one person who can release you from sins because your sins are ultimately, as Joseph said many years ago in Genesis, there's only one, one person who sins you against because it's his law that you're breaking. That's God. And so the only person who can really release you from sin is God who can grant you forgiveness. Not only does he do that, but as he said, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through him. There's no other way to enter a right relationship with God. You can be in a relationship, a hostile one. You can have intimacy with intimacy. intimacy I'm not intimate. Never mind. Forget that. <laughs> I'm getting choked up here. I'm getting ahead of myself. You, you can have a hostile relationship with God. Oh, I'm getting tongue-tied. See you uh, and, that, and, that, and you could be a child of wrath. That's the kind of relationship, but, but a peaceful relationship, one in which God is your father, you adopt into his family, that relationship only comes through Jesus Christ. And not only that, but there's the reality that, that we need that relationship because human history has proven time and time and time again that when humans do not live in relationship with their creator in the right way, they do things that destroy themselves and destroy others. And then only this God, by coming to reside in you, can you have the power to live differently than you've lived before. So that when sin, your old master calls you and dictates to you what you ought to do, you're able to say no because you can say, as Romans 6 says, you're no longer my master. I am now a slave of God, and I present my body and my members to God as slaves of righteousness, not slaves of sin. But you can't do that on your own. You need God for that. And that's why redemption is so important. Only God can set you free, set me free, set humanity free from the bondage that we've gotten ourselves into. We've tried all kinds of solutions, and they've all failed. Only God's solution works. Not only do we see redemption in the text in verse 28, but we also see restoration. Look back with me at the text in verse 28. It says, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So uh, I, I don't know when this is going to happen. God has not given me any insight. I've never looked over his shoulder on his divine calendar. But I do know that one day that Jesus is going to return. And he's going to, when he returns, he's going to set things back to the way God uh, intended. 
uh, for things to be uh, in the Edenic state. That, that, that's where we're headed. That's where our history is going. We see this, uh, this idea that God, when he does come, part of this has to do first with restoring humanity. Because remember, as Sean told us last week, uh, as creation was being laid out in the six days of creation, as he laid out, the pinnacle of that creation on earth was humanity. Uh, we were the image of God set up, as John Walter might say, uh, in this temple structure of God that was set up to be his image in the temple. Uh, we were put as the pinnacle of creation. And so God is going to transform us. We see this in passages like 1 John chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 15, Colossians chapter 3, that this salvation includes in it the transformation of our mortal bodies into a new state of existence. Now, we don't necessarily know what that's like, and that's why in 1 John chapter 3, when John talks about it, he says, listen, I don't know what we're going to be. I just know when we see him, we'll be like him. And that's how he describes it. Whatever it is that Christ is, whatever that transformation, that, that state of what we often refer to as glorification, whatever all that is, we'll be that. I don't have the scientific details to tell you what that exactly is, but whatever he is, that's what we'll be. Now, along with this change for us that's coming for us, also is coming a restoration of all things, that is, all creation. Paul references this in his writings, both to the Colossians and to the Romans. Let me show you both of those passages. One in Colossians, Paul writes this. He says this, For in him all the fullness of God, speaking of Jesus, fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the, blood of his, by the blood of his cross. So God is reconciling not just some things, not just us, but all things in Christ. And notice what he says, in heaven and on earth. So there's nothing left outside of what God is doing in Christ. All of creation, both visible and invisible, is being reconciled by the cross of Christ. Paul lays out this idea of the restoration of creation, and it links it to us and our transformation in Romans when he writes this out of that very well-known chapter chapter 8. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, <clears throat> not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await or wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul links these two ideas together and he says, listen, the world, the creation, the inanimate object is groaning to be set free from the bondage that it's in. It's in the bondage too, to death and decay, just like we are. But it has to wait until we, the children of God, are set free before it can be released from its bondage. And so it's groaning, and that's what's going on in the world. Why is this the case? Well, you remember back, Sean told us last week, chapter 3, when uh, there was this idea when God showed up to judge man because he had put him to be his vice regent, man and woman, over to rule over earth, and that was to be man's kingdom, to rule on God's behalf with God as king, man and humans as his vice regents, managing the world on God's behalf, being his visible representatives, physical representatives on planet earth, and he was given that management. When man sinned, notice what God did. God cursed the earth. 
You see that repeated in Genesis 8 when he tells Noah after the flood, man is bad, all the intentions of his heart are bad, but I'm not going to curse the earth again because of man. But the earth is under a curse because of man's sin, because man was supposed to manage it on God's behalf. But there is coming a day when Christ returns because he's the new Adam and because he has secured and done what God wanted, then that curse can now be lifted because the earth is under new management. Not under the management from earth, but under the man from heaven. And because he has kept God's word, the curse can now be lifted. And so that's the idea. No more sin. Jesus dealt with it on the cross. Then there's no need for any more curse. And so when our bodies are set free from death and decay, the creation itself will also be set free. But it has to wait until we are set free before it can be set free. And so it is groaning at this time. In addition to this, there's also the reality that Jesus is going to deal with evil, both heavenly and earthly. We see this in places like Psalm 82, Isaiah 24, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians, and of course in Revelation chapters 19 and 20. Uh, I remember at the beginning of the message, I told you there's some other ways of looking at breaking out these themes. There's a Japanese New Testament scholar, his name is Kaz Yamazaki Ransom. He lays out a different structure, not creation, fall, redemption, restoration. He lays it out as creation origin of evil, people of God, Jesus, the renewed people of God, the defeat of evil, and then lastly, uh, renewed creation. And I like the way he brings that out because he gets at at a point that comes to the forefront of something else that must be dealt with. When Sean talked about last week, when we get to the garden scene and we're in the garden issue and we're back to the origin, there's already a problem. This serpent shows up. He's not explained where he comes from, but he's already in rebellion against God. He's already evil. And he leads humanity into that evil, and we join a rebellion that's already been going on. So whatever this future is that God has, if God doesn't deal with the evil that was already there, we might end up back in it again. So God has to deal with the evil that's in it, both heavenly and earthly. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. When he returns, he is going to deal with all evil. He is going to deal with those beings that we cannot see who have influenced humanity over the years and towards wrong and caused us to sin. And we have given into that. He's going to deal with them so that when he gets to the point of creating the new heavens, and new earth, renewing the earth, that there'll be no more evil. Because as the prophet said, it will be a place of righteousness. See, there won't be any more death there. There won't be any more evil and there won't be any more pain because there'll be no more sin and no one, no more anyone to tempt you to sin. All evil will be dealt with. God will make all things new. And that's why it's imperative that if God is going to deal with and get rid of evil, if you don't deal with your evil right now and get it dealt with through the cross, then God's got to deal with it later. And if your evil is not conquered by Christ's blood and, and covered and you transform so that you can enter it, then you've got to be dealt with with the devil. And that's why it's so important that we come to Christ and ultimately we experience what he has. God is going to restore the earth. And what we end up with is the, the picture at the end of Revelation is exactly what we had in the beginning, but better. God with his people on a new heaven, a new earth, them ruling as vice regents. Hebrews 2 talks about the world to come will be not subjected to angels, but to the new glorified humans. Uh, We will be the ones managing the new earth on God's behalf as he rules. And we're now heaven and earth brought together just like the garden. We have new Jerusalem and new Eden all together again. And all is at peace. There's no more evil. There's nothing to ruin this relationship with God. That's where everything is going. And God is allowing us by what he's done in Christ to be a part 
of that. And that's why the Bible says that God is the great redeemer and restorer. Now, what does this mean for all of us who have been redeemed? We've been set free from the bondage of sin. Though we still battle on a daily basis, but we turn ourselves by the power of the Spirit to experience a, a transformation in our lives. And we're still waiting on the redemption of our bodies. That is, we still have these old bodies. Our hairs are still getting gray. We're still losing the abilities that we used to have when we were 20. Now we're 70. We can't do the same things we used to do. Maybe you still can. I don't know. At 70. Oh, that you used to do when you were 20. I, I don't know. But, uh, but what do we do in the meantime? Uh, Pastor Mike had recommended that one of the books that I read in preparation for the sermon was a book by Matt Chandler called The Explicit Gospel. And I think he gives good, helpful pastoral advice uh, at this point. Uh, he first talks about the scripture, uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 5, to, to, to set things up. But let me read that back to you just in case you don't remember what it says. It says this. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Pastor Chandler goes on to say, hey, listen, if you've been reconciled, then that means that you have been called into the ministry of reconciliation. And this is what he writes, and I think this is good. He says, there are, according to sociologists, seven domains of society. And when we get into what is called incarnational ministry, then the church's mission of evangelism and discipleship has us intentionally living in these seven domains as agents of gospel reconciliation. So he says, when we look at our jobs, whether that, uh, no matter what your job is, uh, we look at not, not for looking to our jobs, not as our purpose in life, uh, but where God has sovereignly placed us for the purpose of making Christ known and making his name great. So he says, hey, if you're a teacher, a businessman in agriculture, construction, technology, or in the arts, you should not be saying, I need to find my life's purpose in this work, but rather I need to bring God's purpose to this work. And when we receive God's heart for all things, then it helps us as people to live beneath our means and give to those who are less fortunate. And so we go into other parts of the world to help those who would be considered the least of these. And he says in his church, it's the reason why in his church they go out and they talk to city's officials who are in their area, in the Dallas area, and they ask them, what can our church do to help the city? How can, I be a, how can our church be a place that's for the city? And he says this is a natural result of someone who has been reconciled to God and to others by the cross of Christ. And then we become, as a result of that, agents of reconciliation, which calls us to engage the world around us in meaningful ways that live out what a gospel-transformed life looks like. So Pastor Chandler says this, if you've been reconciled, then you have the ministry of reconciliation, and you should be active in that. Let me close with a story that was told uh, a few years ago. Uh, Daily Bread had this story, and it told of a, a pastor in Boston by the name of A.J. Uh, Gordon. Uh, he was out one day at the church, and uh, he happened to be on the property, and there was a young man passing by. Uh, he had an old rustic cage with a few birds in the cage, and he was passing by. Of course, the pastor was curious. Pastor Gordon was, and he stopped the young boy, and he asked him, hey, uh, what are you doing with those birds there? And he said, oh, I found these birds. These are some wild birds I had trapped uh, while I was out in the field, and I'm just planning on uh, playing with them for a bit, and then after I get through playing with them, I'm going to take them to my old cat at home and feed these birds to them. Uh, and that's what I'm going to do with the, with the birds. And, and so the pastor's heart was moved with compassion for the birds, 
And so he said, hey, would you be willing to uh, sell the birds to me? And the, man, and the little boy was like, well, uh, sir, you don't want these old birds. They can't really sing that well. Uh, these are, they're, they're not even worth much. You know, why would you even want them? You're not going to get anything. The pastor said, that's okay. How about I give you $2 for them and coins, and uh, you give me the birds in the cage. And the boy was like, well, all right, you know, it's your loss. Uh, you getting these uh, raggedy old birds, and I'm going to get this money. And so the pastor was like, okay, that's, that's, that's good. And so he paid the young boy. The boy went off smiling. He was excited. He was happy, and, and he ran off. And the pastor, immediately after that, he walked around to the back of the church property. He opened up the cage, and the birds flew out, and they started singing. The next week, he took that cage to church with him, and he sat it on the pulpit, and he told his congregation about the story of what had happened with the young boy. And he looked at them, and he told the congregation, he said, you know, it's interesting that the young boy said the birds couldn't sing, or they didn't sing well. He said, but when I released them, he said, they made a beautiful sound. And he said, it's almost as if they were saying, I've been redeemed. I've been redeemed. I've been redeemed. And then he looked at his congregation, and he said, we were like those birds in that cage. We were trapped by sin on our way to be fed to death. And Christ came along and had compassion on us and paid the price and opened the cage and let us out. And now all we ought to be able to be able to sing is raise our hands and say, I've been redeemed. I've been redeemed. I've been redeemed. Brothers and sisters, there's not enough time to tell you all the good things that God has done for you. But we hope in this series that we're giving you a taste to appreciate what God has done. God created we fail. He has redeemed, and one day he's going to restore. You have hope for a great future. Live for Jesus and make him known. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for, your, for what you have done in Christ for us, uh, something we do not deserve. Uh, you were under no obligation. Uh, Lord, you could have easily sentenced us to the, uh, to the fate of death. But in your great mercy, you call through the gospel so that we might hear and respond with faith and repentance and that we might experience the redemption to be set free. We thank you that you've addressed the real fundamental human problem. We know we need to work in the world towards some of the manifestations of that. We, we know we're called to do that in various ways, but we know that there is a root problem behind all of these things, whether that's corrupt governments or, or whether that's abusive relationships or or whatever it might be. Uh, we know, Lord, that the real issue is in the human heart, that people are in rebellion against you. They know that they've sinned, they know that they're guilty, and they know they have no way out. But you offer them hope because Christ has paid for their sins. He's able to do that if they will turn to him by faith. And so, Lord, uh, we pray that you would help us to be ministers of reconciliation in the world around us in our daily affairs. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Uh, I ask that you stand with us as our worship team leads us in our final song, and then we'll dismiss you in just a moment.